The beauty of what God has created. The beauty of who God is and the Son of God that he's given to us. All of these point to the glory of God and call us to praise him for who he is and all he's done. That praise to God is the theme of Psalm 29 as well. But in this psalm, we'll see the emphasis pointing to praise to God for a little different reason than we just heard in that very beautiful song. We were all shocked to hear the news this past week that a man had killed 18 people in the state of Maine. During the following day, while he remained at large, whole communities over a widespread area were locked down in their homes, everyone wondering where he might be planning to strike next. Maine's a pretty big state, and maybe you've taken the time to look up where this all took place but probably not. Uh, those events, though, had a special interest for Jan and me since we had just returned from two weeks in New England, uh, just the beginning of this week. Uh, and we had been visiting a number of places over several days along the coast of Maine. At one point, we were less than 30 miles from Lewiston, where, uh, where these tragedies occurred. Now that's still 30 miles, and it, it's about a week of difference. Uh, we weren't there this week, we were there last week. And yet all of that for us has just made this, uh, this event it's just seem a whole lot closer to real life. And to help us to identify with the danger that people were sensing over those couple of days uh, while all of that was going on. You don't have to be real close to a current outbreak of danger to know that we are all in danger on a fairly regular basis. Dangers are not very far from any of us at any particular time. And in the most, uh, most cases, dangers that we don't even know about until they actually happen. We are threatened by powerful forces in this world that could do us much harm. In some cases, would like to. From evil people with weapons to careless people, driving cars, to an egocentric boss in your office, to germs in your body, the possibilities for harm seem to be just about endless. We certainly seem to have a lot to worry about, don't we? But Psalm 29 interrupts that line of thinking. And urges us to consider another perspective. Yes, the forces that are arrayed against us that could do us harm, uh, 
they're strong. This psalm points out in a very special way that our God is stronger still. And it's no accident that David, in writing this psalm, pairs that great truth with what we can correctly assess as our greatest responsibility. In Psalm 29, the message here is that the Lord alone is all-powerful. No other force rises to that level. The Lord alone is all-powerful. So you must devote yourself to bring him glory. Now, we might not have paired those two together, but we're going to see as Psalm 29 unfolds uh, this combination, how well they suit each other and how compelling they are, both in its truth and in its exhortation. It's a little bit unusual, but this psalm opens with the exhortation, sets the theme. What this is all about, really, is our responsibility, our opportunity to give God glory in the ways that he deserves. And so it begins with the exhortation, and it repeats that exhortation several different times in just slightly distinct ways. And the focus here is, uh, the call is to ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Now this is not then directly addressed to us. It's directed to angels. Uh, Literally, that phrase is to the sons of God, those heavenly beings. The call, though, is not overlooking us. This is not us just finding out a little bit more about what goes on in heaven. Very often in Scripture, when it issues a call to a high class like angels, the implication is that this same call applies to all lesser beings as well, particularly to us. There's no doubt that David, in fact, wrote this for us. But in addressing the heavenly beings, he's also uh, reminding us that those that can see reality the clearest, those that have the clearest view of what's really going on in, in the world, in the universe, in all of life, they recognize their responsibility. So ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, and all earthly beings as well. He deserves praise for his majesty. His majesty is foremost here. Ascribe to him then, as the second line states, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The King James verb uh, translates this verb as to give God glory and strength. And that's appropriate, but it could be misunderstood as if we're actually contributing anything to God. The point here is that he already has it. He has all of it, all the glory, 
all the strength, all the power, ascribing to him, giving to him, simply calls upon us to acknowledge it openly, to praise him for it, to proclaim to others that this is what our God is like. This is the majesty that he possesses. Proclaim him alone as the all-powerful God. So the call is universal. Everybody, take note. But the call is also exclusive. He doesn't share this glory, this strength with any other creature. This is his alone. And for that, he deserves praise. Verse 2 modifies that just a little as it goes on to say, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. God's name in Scripture is never just what we call him. God's name is who he is. It's everything about him. We could say it this way. It's his attributes. That's his name. His name incorporates all of that. So ascribe to the Lord the glory that his attributes deserve. Give him praise for that. And and now we've the third time had this call repeated. Ascribe to God uh, these three times. Three times as if to say, don't you dare miss this responsibility. This is your highest duty. Give God the glory that he deserves Worship God for who he is, all he's revealed about himself in his words, what he's written down for us, as well as in his works, what we can see all around us, what's recorded for us in his word about what he has done in the past, what he will yet do in the future. Worship God for who he is. The last part of verse, ten, uh, verse 2 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Worship God the way he wants. People don't get to choose what pleases God. People have a responsibility to discern what pleases God based on who he is and what he has said, and then to do that. So here is a single statement of God giving us an indication. He he gives us much more information elsewhere in his word, but here is uh, uh, a hint at least, a, a directional pointer as to the way God wants people and angels to worship him. Angels, however, don't have quite the impediment that people do, that we do. Worship him in the splendor of holiness. Now, in a sense, that's a a little vague. It clearly has a picture of something very impressive. 
the splendor of holiness. But what does that actually look like? The emphasis here has to be on the word holiness. Holiness is basically, at its heart, a separation. Separation from what is sinful, certainly, but also describes a separation from what is common, what is ordinary. Our God is special. He deserves special consideration. And so what might be appropriate for ordinary circumstances when it comes to worshiping God, he deserves your best. The emphasis, though, on separation from sin means that to truly worship God the way he deserves means we need to focus on personal purity, victory over sin, forgiveness of sin that he makes available when we have failed to maintain that holiness. But by all means, approach God and worship with that sense of holiness that in itself is a special splendor that you can't offer to God in any other way. You can't do it without holiness. Worship God the way he wants. Now we take our worship service here at Cornerstone very seriously. We do regard this as the most important thing any of us do all week long. This is the culmination. This is is what starts our new week. The conclusion of all of our experiences over the past week. Is it possible that we take worship of God a little too seriously? According to these first two verses, I would have to maintain, no, that is not possible. We are in danger of not taking it seriously enough. He deserves praise for his majesty, for his attributes. And the Lord has displayed that most clearly to the angels. And they know their responsibility. We don't see God's majesty and attributes clearly enough yet due to our own limitations. But our responsibility is just as clear. These first two verses urge us, if Uh, to, to purposely strive to give God all the honor that he deserves. To honor him, first of all, this next week. You're going to have many opportunities to do that, and it applies to every aspect of your life. We are prone to just want to assume that what I do this week will bring God honor. And we're content to just pray that prayer in a general way. God, may you be honored in all I do. But it would be a step in the right direction to purposely strive to set out each new day. Lord, help 
every activity, every word I speak, everything that I do, all that I participate in, Father, may this all bring you honor. And then throughout the week to be mindful that we are planning to meet here together again next Sunday. Our next opportunity to do this together again. And to begin already here at the beginning of the week to prepare for that grand culmination of all that we will do this week individually that we can then share together and worship to God corporately. Now, to be open up with the exhortation, it is a little bit unusual. It, it, it works fine. It communicates well. But to now know what we need to do, worship God, it does beg the question, why in particular should I do that? Not that we would struggle to come up with some reasons, but we're wondering, well, David, what particular reasons do you have in mind at this moment? Why should we so focus our attention on giving God honor? And that's what uh, makes Psalm 29 stand out, because in a way that's not duplicated uh, in any other psalm, he points to nature in verses 3 through 9, and says here that the Lord displays his power in nature. And he has in mind one particular aspect of God's dealings with nature. And it is that he commands the storms that, uh, that uh, transpire throughout the world. Uh, at any given time, multiple storms going on. And these next few verses would attribute all of that to, the, to God. Surprisingly, though, not to the, to the hand of God as a demonstration of his power, but to the voice of God. And it identifies it, first of all, specifically with, in the midst of a very bad storm, the thunder that we hear. The sound of thunder, David maintains, expresses God's glory. There must have been uh, numerous times that David, watching sheep, had to stay out there during a thunderstorm. And he, he's drawing some lessons of things that he learned through that. The sound of thunder, he says, expresses God's glory. And he begins describing a particular storm. Uh, and he describes it, though, uh, in unusual geographical locations. It starts out in, this, in the sea, in the Mediterranean Sea. So from the west, and it starts moving toward the east. But then rather than affecting the land of Israel, which David could have seen and experienced personally, he instead describes it as crossing the Canaanite territory of Lebanon and then ends up in Syria. So it's, it's crossing over in the north. So not directly this time affecting God's people, but what David is doing here is using some Canaanite uh, 
uh, poetic features that they attribute to the Canaanite god Baal, portrayed as the god of storms, and what a powerful god he is. That's why we have to worship him. And David is asserting, no, it's not Baal. It's the Lord. The Lord is the God of storms. So let's get into this section. Uh, The sound of thunder expresses his glory. In verse three, uh, he says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. Uh, These are ocean waters, the waters that churn and waves that break. Often in scripture, this sea is a picture of chaos, of, of filth being churned up from the ocean depths. And what these, this first verse, verse three, is maintaining is that even when it looks like it, everything's random, there's no purpose, there's no direction going on here, God controls it all. He's the God of the storm that starts out at sea. The voice of the Lord in verse four is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. We're tempted here to identify the voice of God. God speaks and the result is the sound of thunder. That's certainly uh, uh, possible. But I think he's actually saying more than that. As this psalm goes on, it's going to go on to another feature, not just the sound that a storm can make and identify that with the voice of God as well. So this is more likely to be metaphor. The voice of God is like the sound of thunder, and it's just his voice he's describing. Uh, the, The sound of a person's voice, it would typically be thought of as one of the less impressive aspects of his strength. And starting with that, and what other power does God have? Could also, though, be the indication here that all it takes is God to speak, and the storms rage. That's how powerful he is. Storms proclaim then his power over the seas. Verses five and six, that same storm proclaims his power over land. It's moving eastward uh, toward the north of Israel. Uh, In verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Cedars of Lebanon are proverbial for their stability, for their beauty, for their, their strength and even for their usefulness. The wood is very strong and lasts a long, long time when utilized for human purposes. Look what God's voice can do to the cedars of Lebanon. Breaks them, breaking the cedars of Lebanon itself. 
Verse six, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Much of Lebanon is mountain ranges. There are a couple of ranges uh, as you move inland. So no particular mountain peak in mind here. Syrian, though, is uh, identified elsewhere as Mount Hermon, the, the largest of the mountains in that part of the world. And that they skip like a calf or like a young wild ox uh, might be that these broken pieces of trees then get blown across the landscape and tumble down the mountainsides. And the, the imagery here is of, the, of that skipping. What power, what power God has he can shatter and uproot stable trees. And that way, storms proclaim his power over the land. That imagery then shifts a little bit in verses 7 through 9, where now it's the sight of lightning that expresses his glory, but it's still attributed to his voice. The voice of the Lord in verse 7 flashes forth flames of fire. Uh, the lightning in the midst of a storm on a dark night uh, can be terrifying. Not just the boom of the thunder, but the streaks across the sky. And all it takes is God's voice to produce that. God commands, and it happens. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. There's a Kadesh way down in the south of Israel, but this one is in the deserts, the wilderness area of Syria, a vast territory. So it's simply moving west toward the east, and it's in this case, now shaking the wilderness. The voice of the Lord in verse 9 makes the deer to give birth and strips the forest bare. The stripping of the forest here is the intense wind blowing the leaves right off the trees prematurely. And all of this, and even the, 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 the deer giving birth, the implication seems to be the deer wasn't quite ready, but it's time all of a sudden. Uh, it, it, it seems to be a successful birth, not the loss of a baby deer, not the loss of trees in this case, but the point is it's, it only takes God's voice. And he does all of this. Here we have storms submitting creation to him. They have to bow before him. They have to do what he commands. Earth shakes, animals fear, trees bow before the voice of the all-powerful God. Verse 9, though, concludes with a statement that surprises us in this context. What else does God's voice do? Well, nothing else in verse 9. Instead, he tells us what it prompts the angels to do. 
in his temple. This would be referring to God's courts in heaven. The heavenly temple, it's still the angels that he has in mind. Those creatures who are unimpeded by sin to see most clearly the, the, the person of God and draw lessons from what he is doing, what they are witnessing. Well, they see all of this. They see the storm that God can create with simply a word of his mouth. So verse nine concludes all this by saying, and in his temple, all cry glory. You see, the point here is that the angels are interpreting the storm correctly. They see what what message is, is visible and audible in the course of the storm. The message is God is powerful. He deserves our worship. And so they fulfill the admonitions from verses one and two, and they cry out glory. They are proclaiming God's glory. Our family, our our extended family, had the opportunity, I think a, a very unusual opportunity a long time ago now. There was a hurricane uh, in, in New England, and that alone is highly unusual. But it was still a Category 1 hurricane when it reached the shores of New England, and we happened to be in a rented house on the coast uh, as, it, as it approached. Uh, police would come by with their loudspeakers urging everybody to evacuate, and they even stopped one time, noticing that we were still there, and, uh, and said, uh, have, have you thought about leaving? They were not ordering us to do so. They just thought it would probably be a good idea. Most people were, but we had assessed that the place we were renting not only had a wonderful view of the ocean right there in front of us uh, from fairly high up on a cliff, but it also was a very stable house. And we had assessed that we've got as good a choice to weather the storm here as we do going home. And where else would we go? So we thanked him for his concern and said, I think we're gonna stay here. Just so you're not concerned, it all worked out great. We never even lost power. We had roast beef for dinner that night, Uh, nice and hot. And we had a front row view of a hurricane. It was a kind of a wraparound porch, not just screened in, it was glassed in. This was a year-round house built to last. And we could, uh, we could see as we played games and board games and things, we could see this taking place. And it was amazing. We didn't see any damage. We just saw impressiveness. Now, there was another storm, just the most recent hurricane, and it was in Mexico just this last week. That was devastating. Verse 9 is not suggesting that the angels see destruction and cheer 
Yay, do it again. There's no destruction going on in verse 9. Verse 9 is a deer giving birth. It's trees losing leaves. This is okay. But their focus then is on what this says about God. The world claims to have power. Baal claimed to have power in the minds of the Canaanites. God is the one who has power. The Lord displays his power in nature. Now, that's an important truth for us to conclude, but how does it affect us directly? Well, that's how this psalm, a very beautifully balanced psalm, closes with the last two verses. Because the Lord displays his power to people as well. Specifically, in verse 10, he is sovereign in his power. He controls everything. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Now, it's a little bit peculiar that the ESV has chosen to translate both verbs exactly the same. They're the same word, but they're not the same tense. The first one is actually describing a past event. The Lord sat enthroned over the flood. Well, that now makes us think that this is not just a flood from a current storm. This is the flood. This is Noah's flood. Confirming that is that the particular word that David uses for flood is only ever elsewhere used in Genesis 6 through 11, exclusively referring to that flood. So there's a particular angle to God's sovereignty that verse 10 wants us to focus on. First, there is a past key event that tells us how powerful God is. In one storm, that was a very long storm, but in one storm, God was capable of destroying the whole world. That is a powerful God. He has in the past then demonstrated the, the, his sovereign power with that singular act of judgment. The second part of verse 10 shifts the focus from the past to the future. He sits enthroned right now as well. He sits enthroned as king forever. But it could be that the real focus of that last part of verse 10 in shifting from one key instance of God demonstrating his sovereign power as an act of judgment, that he's now looking ahead, not just to his sovereign control going on right now, but to that culmination 
demonstration of his sovereign power in one key act of judgment yet to come. That great white throne judgment. You put those two together, God has always been the ruler of all. And God will always be the ruler of all. He's not just all powerful. He has always been and always will be the only all-powerful being. Judgment then is in verse 10. Verse 11 shifts that sovereign focus just a little more and says he is also gracious with his power. May the Lord give strength to his people. Here is God willing to use his power for the benefit of people. May the Lord give strength, his strength, to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's put those two things together. First of all, to give strength to his people means may he enable them. Enable them to not just survive the storms of life somehow, but to thrive in the midst of those storms. To bring them through in victory. He enables his people. But the reference to peace is what baffles the world the most. That God's people experiencing the same kinds of storms that they do can endure these storms with peace in the heart. Without the fear, trepidation. Now, if, you're, if you have the opportunity of going through a very serious storm, uh, I mean, it's okay to take all precautions. This doesn't mean we are carefree and lack caution. You take appropriate precautions, but in the midst of that, it's an, oh, no. It's instead rising above the storm to say, what a powerful God. That God, then, deserves your worship. Jan and I were safe at home when the news of the uh, outbreak up in Maine uh, came through. But one of our former members is pastoring a church not far from Lewiston. And we had had dinner with them. Uh, Thursday night that week. And that's when we were uh, quite close to, uh, to where the circumstances took place. And in fact, that was where we were last Sunday. We were at their church. We came home here. They were still there this last week. They were within the area that was experiencing lockdowns. Their family was at risk. 
Now that couple has faced numerous personal and ministry storms in the past. This one's unique. But the same grace that has sustained them and enabled them for their past experiences was the same grace God provided this week. It's the same grace he makes available to all people as well. Now, whether the power of God you will experience in your life as an act of judgment ultimately or as an act of salvation is entirely up to you. You choose. He offers. You can have his saving grace or you can experience his judgment. He offers that in the person of his son. You can have all your sin forgiven if you will trust his son as savior. For God's people though, the message here is to go beyond just trusting God. It's not just, he's a powerful God, so decide to trust him. A step beyond trusting God is devote your life to his glory. Accept that highest calling. Commit yourself to honor him in all you do. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we are overwhelmed by the reality of how powerful you are and how we thank you that you offer your power through your grace to meet the needs of your people, to sustain them through storms, to enable them to serve you effectively. Father, we plead for that grace, grace that can enable us not just to trust you, but that can enable us to give you the honor you deserve. Father, we ask for your grace at work in the hearts of those who do not yet know Christ as Savior. Pray that even at this moment, your spirit would convict of sin and would convince them to turn to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.